Psalm 23 is arguably the most beloved, best-known psalm in all the earth. In every Hollywood movie, when a funeral is portrayed, Psalm 23 is the somber, quiet reflection of the minister. If I have an opportunity to do your funeral, you will hear me doing Psalm 23 at the beginning of it. Of course, if you hear me and it's your funeral, something has gone way wrong. You want to fire that mortician right away. He's missed something great. But this psalm centers around a topic that Israel would have been entirely familiar with as the nation was virtually founded by shepherds. When Jacob and his family made their way down to Egypt, even after Joseph had warned them not to divulge their occupations, all confessed before Pharaoh that they were shepherds from their youth. Both we and our fathers, Psalm, or, or excuse me, Genesis 46, 34, God looked upon the leaders of Israel as their shepherds. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 7. Of course, the most famous shepherd in all of Israel was the author of this psalm, the king of Israel. David. In this beautiful section, David writes an homage to his shepherd. What makes him a great shepherd of his sheep? What does he offer that no one else can offer? Let's examine this together and see what we discover. Let's take a look again. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What a beautiful statement to read. The Lord is my shepherd. David uses the covenant name of God to reveal the strength of this relationship. This faithful God of Israel, he says is my shepherd. Please do take note of the tense of that phrase. This psalm will only make sense to you and to any of those that have a present tense relationship with this God. If he was your shepherd or if he could be your shepherd, then this psalm will fail to speak to you. Scholars believe that David wrote this at a very late portion, a late period in his life, having considered his years of experience and come to this as the explanation for all of his life's success. I mean, how, would, how else would you explain this? How does a man survive the hunt of a king in the wilderness for all those years, some think even two decades? How does one explain that? How do you explain how David was able to lead Israel to such a prosperous position regionally in his days? How could one explain his rags-to-riches success? The Lord is my shepherd. That's his explanation. David, for all of his wisdom and prowess, even at this old age, this old advanced age, was not the master of his own destiny. He wants us to know that. He was a lamb, just like all of us. And God was his shepherd. Do you see yourself that way? Do you look upon your life and explain it by some other method, by some other idea, by some thing that you can point to in yourself? Or do you look upon God and the fact that he has led you all the way? He's kept you from this way. He's had you go this way when you would have gone the other way. Is God, the covenant God of Israel, your shepherd? Now, there's no power in acknowledging that he is a shepherd. You can't even say that he's good until you know him personally. Because God is David's shepherd, one of the primary benefits is that he shall not want. The phrase might better be translated, I have no lack. What a truth to be told and a powerful one in this age, don't you think? Every shepherd's job is predicated upon anticipating need. 
For a lamb to admit that he is without need is a powerful testimony indeed. David's words are powerful in the light of modern thinking. Many who choose to run their own lives, believing the false narrative that they know and have the power to affect what's best for them. But no matter how it appears, they're dead wrong. Only those that walk in the shadow of their shepherd know what a life without lack is. Wasn't it Paul who said, I've learned in all seasons and all, all states of being, whether it be poor or rich, I've learned to be content. What a gift that is. And it comes from those who live in the shadow of their shepherd. David describes this life first in light of provision. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now, it may surprise you that sheep are not prone to lie down. You would think that we're a little bit more, or maybe they're a little bit more like us. We naturally like to lie down. There's three or four people over here that are already asleep. That happens all the time in my messages. It's really a gift that I have. My son, he had a real spiritual gift of lying down. He would get up on Saturdays when he was an earlier teen. He'd get out of his bed and he'd walk five or six feet to the couch and then he'd lie down again. And then he'd get up from there only to shrivel into the ground and then make it to the lazy boy chair on the other side of the room. And he had a real gift of laying down. But sheep are not likely to lay down. They're not prone to do so. In fact, God causes his sheep to lie down in green, lush, and fresh pastures where the ground is both soft and also nourishing. How many of you have ever read the book by Philip Keller, A Shepherd Looks, at Psalm 23? Oh, that's, see, I love that. So many more hands went up here than at other churches. I'm not going to tell you where. <clears throat> But Psalm 23 is a standard work that I hardly recommend to any who did not raise their hand. But according to Philip Keller, a lamb won't lie down for four reasons. First, he won't lie down in the face of fear from predators. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? It's hard to lie down when you know you're about to be lamb chops. Second, they won't lie down if there's friction between it and a fellow lamb. Third, it won't lie down when flies pester it. And fourth, it won't lie down in famine. So imagine what David is insinuating here about the shepherding wisdom of his covenant God. God knows how to eliminate our fears. Have you seen him do that in your life? Have you watched as he's called you to obey him in spite of your fear and the emotion that might come along with that? And have you found that as you've walked, he's eliminated those fears. He's changed your perception of it. Let you know that the only thing really to fear is God. He grants us wisdom and peace among our fellows. And he removes that which irritates or annoys us again by changing our perspective about those things. I was thinking about this on my way here tonight while I was on the 91 freeway and how I used to have a very long commute between Mentone and Orange County when I had to work behind the Orange Curtain. I remember complaining quite a bit because of all the traffic. And the 91 today just reminded me of how much that was so true. It was so dense all the way. I remember how I was so upset and irritated by it until I started to learn that my car could become my sanctuary. It could become a place where I could devote that time to the Lord. So I started listening to messages. I started putting on worship music. And before I knew it, I was sad that I made it home so quickly. 
I actually took another couple of rounds. I remember getting to my house near Mentone, and I remember going, man, I'm home too early. I gotta, I gotta take another couple of rounds a couple around the block here so I can just get some more time with the Lord. That's how he changes us. He, he doesn't change what annoys you. You want him to just, just let that person become a smoldering hole. Just whatever you can do. Just pull a, a you know, some kind of Old Testament thing on that guy. Instead, he changes your heart, changes your mind about that. He changes what annoys and irritates us, and he fills our spiritual bellies to the brim. He meets the condition for our rest. Our shepherd knows the best pastures to eat from and the best streams and waterways to drink from. Did you notice that phrase, still waters? The still waters won't frighten the sheep. They'll drink deeply from calm sources only. The good shepherd is mindful of his people's frailty, thoughtful of how best to lead them. Do you realize that's the thing about God with you? He's so personal. He knows exactly where he can walk you to. That's why Christianity is not like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons who are all about conformity to one kind of idea or one kind of way, an iconic way of living. We don't all wear the same things. We don't all act the same. We don't respond to the same stuff. Some things are more sinful to us than others. He knows how to lead us. And there are still waters that he leads us by because he knows how we are. I was thinking of this illustration after leading Israel out of Egypt. One would think, after 430 years of slavery, that God would take the most direct route, go the most convenient way to get them there. But he doesn't do that. Have you ever wondered why? Let me offer an explanation. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. I don't know if it's back. Oh, well, there you go. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. What could be worse for the people of God? Having been traumatized by their time as slaves or giving up on that freedom that had been given to them by being intimidated at the sight and experience of war still waters. Do you resent God not moving quickly in your life? Nobody in here. You guys are spiritual. It's the rest of refuges home watching, right? They're the ones, those, those little complainers, we know about that. But not you guys. Oh, no. How many of us have wondered, why is he throttling me? Why is he not allowing me to get ahead? Still waters. He knows. He knows where he's leading. He knows the best way to bring us there with all of our mental faculties intact. When we are on his path, he's not, only just, he's not only leading us to where he's going, but he's also busy restoring our souls. Think about that. We've come out of Egypt just like the slaves of Israel, right? And that takes a toll on your soul. And so what does God do? He's busy while you're walking, restoring. Now let me, quick, quick insight here. This is not in my notes. But you know what? A lot of us think, I'm going to just sit here until God heals me. Guess what? That's not the way God does it. He heals you on the move. He heals you as you're going forward in faith. He heals you as you're walking. Now, I mean that in terms of your soul and re repairing, restoring what's happening in you. All the stuff from the world that you brought into this thing. As you're walking with him, he's working and restoring your soul while you walk with him. That word speaks of repairing something or bringing one refreshment. And the tense of the word indicates that it's a repeated, continuous pattern. 
So the original hearer would have heard this verse this way. He is always repairing, refreshing, and restoring my soul. Now, how many of us know that? It's not a one-time thing, is it? Every day is a battle on this planet. Every day there is a fresh cut from the world. And so he's always working to repair us. We know that he does this for us daily. But do you know why? Do you understand why he does that? So that he can lead us in righteousness for his name's sake. A lamb that is injured will never walk where he's led. Today, sin and a refusal to submit oneself to the healing institutions that God has ordained will stunt my progress in righteousness. Pain, self-inflicted or experienced, or experienced, will lead me to choose shortcuts spiritually. Continued attention and obedience to his word, fellowship with like-minded believers, and communion are the quickest and safest means in God's economy toward righteousness. But what does it matter if I obey him all the time? None of you would ever ask that question. So I ask it for you. Because I know you're like me, you're a rebel. What does it matter if I obey the Lord all, all the time? What does God get from my obedience to him? Well, aside from your safety and flourishing, which I think, <laughs> I'll take it. I think that's wonderful. But aside from that, God gets the world's attention. Listen to the alternate translations of verse 3. He leads me down the right paths for the sake of his reputation. That's the NET. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. That's the NLT. In the end, God is putting us upon the right paths of life for our own flourishing. But he's also demonstrating through us what all could expect from him. God is openly recruiting using our lives as a living, breathing advertisement to the kind of life that he begets in all who trust in him. He's using your life to tell the world as he displays his character in us that this is possible for anyone. God is saying, hey, if I can do it with him or her, I can do it with anyone. And there's some pretty extreme hims and hers. Right in this room. I'm not going to mention any names. You know what I'm saying? Some of you know what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> if God can take that person that you once were, especially you who have come out of the world, who were saved out from whatever you were before, when they look at your life ordered, flourishing, and in the right paths, that is such glory to the Lord. And he's advertising through you. And you might think this an impious thought or view it as arrogance, and it would be if it were any other being. But because of who he is, it's neither impious or arrogant. He's stating facts. His reputation's on the line every day with you and I. Verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When you are being led by the shepherd, you can be assured that you are being led to the most God-glorifying destination. Please hear those words. Christians today have such a poor view, and not you guys, but Christians at large 
Christianity is not life enhancement. It is not about giving you a better life. You're not living your best life now. If you are, it's going to be hot after you die. But he is leading you to the most God-glorifying destination. But that destination is never reached without its difficulty. Indeed, there are times when the Lord's vision of our life demands that he lead us through necessarily daunting and intimidating terrain that cannot be avoided. Let's pick this up running into verse 4. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So even if, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what a harrowing description. The words are really interesting to me. Is David making a statement about death and his perspective about it? It's a foreboding shadow, but it's nothing more than the blockage of light. Indeed, for a believer, that's true. As death is an enemy that is vanquished, its teeth are removed. Shadows are not harmful to anyone. It's one explanation, and it is a matter of truth. Believers are not afraid to die though we're pretty picky about how it occurs. I want mine to be natural causes while I'm sleeping. That's the best way to go. Of course, I'm banking on the rapture. I'm hoping it happens before the end of this sermon. I've seen what chat AGTP uh, AI wrote. <clears throat> Easy way to write sermons, by the way. <laughs> Just kidding, I wrote it. Anyway, most commentators, though, believe this to actually be a valley which was home to a cemetery in the first temple period and a place of tombs during the second temp temple period. So both, line, both sides of this valley were lined with death, which is a foreboding place of darkness because it's in a valley deep in a ravine. So the light is blocked out. I mean, how many of you have walked through a cemetery? How many of you ever did that as a teen, right? That's a scary experience. That's what he's talking about. Some people believe that Jesus even used this path or went through this valley when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. So this place was it's a really apt name. And it's not the only valley in our life that we need to travail. In fact, if you would, later on tonight... On your own time, Psalm 84. That's the Psalm of the Pilgrim. There is a place there referred to in that Psalm as the Valley of Baca, which is the Valley of Weeping. That's also a necessary destination on the way to Jerusalem. Isn't that fascinating? Don't you love that God is promising you here? I'm going to have to take you through the valley of the shadow of death, and I'm also going to have to take you through the valley of weeping. If you're a Christian and you've gone through something harrowing like that, or if you've gone through some kind of, some kind of health scare, or you've gone through a time of loss, you're, you're, you're not alone. You're not the only saint that's ever gone through such things. It's the way to where he's leading us. David says that even in that place, he would fear no evil. Why? Because God was with him. Notice, it's not that evil is eliminated. It's that fear is mitigated. Until Christ rules from a physical location upon this planet, and I believe it will happen, evil will be in ever-present reality. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. But the believer is never overcome by their fear of it. God is with us and his rod is sufficient for us. <laughs> now what's David looking to convey with these words? Both refer to what would amount to the casual eye as a walking stick. But it's far more the crooked staff and is an essential tool of the shepherd. The rod was a measure of discipline, useful when a lamb got out of line. The staff would have been used as a means of support or as a means of defense 
against a predator. Now we can see the Lord's staff being a comfort. We are grateful that our God carries a bigger stick than our enemy. I am grateful that my dad can beat the world's dad any day of the week without even getting up. <laughs> There's pictures of that in Scripture, right? Satan went charging to the throne. God didn't even move just with a thought. Boom, you're gone. I saw Satan fall like lightning, Jesus says. That would have been an, I can't wait to rent that one at the heavenly blockbuster. <laughs> I miss that place. Just going like, what am I going to rent tonight? Hours of going, what? Oh, here we go. Satan falling like lightning. It's going to be a good one. So we, we're happy <laughs> for that picture. We're happy he carries a big enough stick to ward off our enemy or grab a hold of us to lift us out of a pit. I saw a video not too long ago of a sheep who actually had fallen into a crevasse into the earth. You know, the floods. We had 12 atmospheric rivers. Did you all see that? It was amazing how much water fell to the earth. We live up near the reservoir system in, in Mentone. They are all full. It's overflowing in every direction. But there are places where the water has run so, so strongly that big crevasses like seven, eight feet have opened where there used to be a path. Well, this video showed a sheep had gotten into this narrow thing, and you can see the shepherd come up and grab it, and it comes running, it's jumping out, it's so happy to be free, but then about three feet over, it falls right into the other side of the crevasse. Now, I know people like that. <laughs> I mean, I have, <laughs> it's half our congregation, but it's also me. I've done the same thing. God, you got me out of this mess only to jump into another one. It is equally as deep. So I'm grateful for his rod that's a comfort to me. He's our protector, keeping us safe along the way from any that would take advantage of us. But what about the rod of discipline? Who wants to be comforted with that? parent has told that lie, this will hurt you more than it hurts me. But it's true. After I became a parent, it's true. We've accepted that our lives are God's canvas to paint upon. We accept his guidance. As we grow, we also become of our inability to follow precisely, if at all, when tempted and drawn aside from our purpose. There are sins, and this is an interesting phrase, that easily beset us. Many of us think we're oaks. I mean, nobody can tempt us to whatever. Well, the Bible says that sin, there are sins that easily beset us. It's not, like, it's not even hard. You're not even making it difficult for sin. It just tears you up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. But then we also understand that our ability to follow him is flawed by what our hearts interpret as his best intentions. We believe we are honoring his wishes, but we're fooled by our own desires. And it's at that time that God's rod of correction, though painful, is absolutely necessary and a blessing for us. For the child of God, it is a comfort to be corrected and did you know it's a proof of relationship? Hebrews chapter 12. The author, clearly not Paul, given the internal evidence, wants his audience to know that their faith must endure in some part through great suffering. Did you hear me say that to you? I know you live in America. I know you can afford really expensive coffee. I know you live in a nice air-conditioned home. But as Christians, being a Christian means we've got to go through suffering. And we're going to have to endure it. What kind? I don't know. To what degree? 
Who knows? But it's going to be a reality. So the Christian must understand that suffering and discipline are a part of the walk of faith that, that many of our heroes walked in. How could we think, how could the people who were listening to the Hebrew, uh, the epistle, how could they think that their lives would be any different? In fact, without suffering and discipline, they would have no way to consider themselves sons. So this is Hebrews 12, verse 5 through 11. And you have forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. No, be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening, chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful. Can I get an amen on that? Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As I walk through the dark valleys of life, as I go through the deep valley of suffering, I'm grateful to sense his presence, correcting my course, setting me peacefully at ease. How many of you have prayed this prayer? Lord, when, it, when, when faced with a decision of where to go and what to do, Lord, don't let me go the wrong way. Stop me from any forward progress in something that wouldn't please you and honor your will for my life. That is an excellent prayer. I commend it to everyone. And the beautiful thing is the moment we step off, if we have that kind of heart, we'll hear a little whip coming in the darkness and moving us right where we need to be. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You and I are lambs in this world. Surrounded by our enemies, but because he's with us, we can eat right out in the open without fear of reprisal. We're safe and secure. There isn't a weapon that is formed against us that can prosper. There isn't an enemy that can overcome our shepherd. So we have the, a luxurious meal right out in front of our ravening enemies. I've thought about this verse maybe more than any other what does he mean what is he meaning to say here I've thought about this in two ways one there is the sense of hospitality when you came into someone's house now some of you probably have great gifts of hospitality you're very warm and generous all of you guys I mean everyone when I come here it's, it's amazing the wonderful superlatives I get from all of you and you never go halfway. You'll tell me, that was the worst message I've ever heard. I mean, you go deep. You go way deep. It's, it's incredible how generous this, this community is to me. But if I went to your home, I'm sure there would be like, you know, you, you would have the full spread. You, maybe some of you have that kind of gift. Well, hospitality in the ancient East, <laughs> we have no idea how far that extended. The fact that God prepares a meal means that his honored guests have come under his protection. So somebody in the east, if you came to their house, they would guard you with all of their resources from any enemy that would come your way. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration of this that's going to make you feel a little funny about the whole deal. And I totally understand it. 
Because we're Westerners trying to look back and peer into an ancient culture. But do you remember when Lot brought the angels into his house? And there were people of that community who were trying to get to the angels to know them biblically, meaning that they wanted to have relations with these angels. And what did Lot do? He offered his daughters. And you and I are like, okay, now my daughters are, you know, they can get on my nerves. But I'm not going to offer them to, I'm not going to offer them to, you know, a gang who's intent on illicit activity with them. I might pretend just to get them to listen to me every now and then. I would never do that. Well, we're Westerners. We don't, we don't understand that the greatest sin would have been to expose the guest to danger. So when God's hosting a meal, our enemies have zero chance of getting at us. Because he's our protection. So that's one way to think about it. But there's another way to think about it. In our world today, we've never been more divided than we are now. Racially, politically. It's incredible. All of us probably have more enemies than we have friends. It's hard for some of us to even admit that maybe some guy who adheres to elephantine doctrine could even be saved only if they follow donkey doctrine only if they're red not blue our world is getting so strange that some of the people who were so blue before before the woke revolution they actually turned purple <laughs> they're red they become strange bedfellows in this very bizarre time. But in our day and age, we think everybody is an enemy. What does God do with enemies? When he saves them, God makes an enemy family. So if my enemy has come to God's house, he's not my enemy anymore. He's my family. That's pretty cool that God does that. That he can take even the person that I would never, ever be in the same room with. And he changes them and me to be at a place where we can sit at the table together. And by the way, friends, whoever is your enemy right now, regardless of how you feel about them, do what you can to see them in Christ and pray that you see that for every moment that you feel hate fill your heart or anger fill your heart because they think different about you they're raised differently than you they think differently than you for every moment you do that give five moments to thinking Lord would you touch their life would you bring them to salvation would you open their eyes to the gospel This beautiful picture. Either God is our protection or God has garnered a brand new family out of enemies. One way or the other, we're sitting together. It was customary in that part of the world to anoint guests with oil. That sounds absolutely repulsive to me. But in that practice, in this time, in the arid and body odor producing climates, it was a blessing. In fact, interestingly, shepherds also anointed their lambs with oil to keep fleas from laying their eggs in their nostrils. That's just free information. You take that home and say, this is what we learned in church. <laughs> but in any event, the Lord's extravagance continues as we sit there in his presence. Our cup of blessing isn't merely full. It's overflowing the lip. It's plentiful, more than we can take, and certainly more than we deserve. And this leads 
David to this wonderful conclusion, surely, without a doubt, without question, given the phenomenal blessings that God has given his sheep during their lives, there can only be one conclusion. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness pertains to that which is pleasant and agreeable, even if the road there is not. It doesn't matter where you are in your journey right now. And there's probably places, some of you are in the valley of the shadow of death. Some of you are in the valley of weeping. Whatever your chapter is now in your journey, listen to this. Goodness is coming your way. That's where you're going. It's a foregone conclusion. Whatever you feel like now doesn't matter. Do you ever think of it this way? How often, I I read a quote from Spurgeon last week. We write our blessings in the sand, but we write our complaints in marble. How many of us have that problem? Man, I saw people raise their hands like this. They don't want to admit it, but we saw you and we caught you on camera. We engrave our complaints in marble. What's it going to be like when we're in heaven? How many of you think you're going to remember anything you suffered? What did Paul say? Nothing here is worthy here, the sufferings, they're not worthy to be compared. You are going somewhere and it's good. There's no doubt about it. It's already fixed. You have to understand no matter what's happening right now and how bad you think it is, you're headed for good. But there's no promise on life here on this planet that's devoid of trouble. The sooner you reconcile that, the better your mental health will be. You will see goodness and mercy. Mercy here is this word that you see all through the book of Psalms. It is the word hesed, which refers to covenant love. It's that particular blessing granted from God to his people. Now, let me explain this this way. Uh, For those of you that have, uh, well, let's start this way. Uh, All of us love kids. All of us love kids. There are people who love kids more than other people. But almost everybody loves a good kid. It's earlier, in fact, today we were sitting back here and these three little boys walk by and go, the smallest one, oh, that guy's a cute little guy. They're all cute, you know, until they turn teens. And then, <laughs> surely goodness. Anyway, um, <laughs> but what a cute little, and you know what, I would, like if, if I had like a lollipop or something, I'd give it to that kid. If he asked me for a dollar, I'd give that kid a dollar. But my kids, my kids get everything. I'm saving for them. I'm thinking about them. I'm preparing things for them. That's the particular love, the particular mercy as it's brought here. It's from God that's given to His own people. That's covenant love. His faithfulness and mercy. In fact, a few commentators have mentioned that a better idea behind these words would be this. Surely goodness and mercy will hunt for me all the days of my life. 
None of them were impressed. (laughs) What a promise. Ah, but wait, there's more. I love infomercials. I literally have a set of knives at home that I know I bought because I watched a Sunday afternoon Ron Popeil, set it and forget it, commercial, an infomercial. You guys ever watch those? If you ever want me to buy anything and you're totally, you know, you're just, you have no credibility, just put it on an infomercial. I'll buy it. I love it. I love that stuff. I love the blender that can take concrete and blend it, you know? Like, what are you ever going to do with that? Whoever thought, like, I wonder if this will take concrete and blend it. But, you know, I, you, I bought a magic bullet. That's just, it's just so powerful. I've never tested it. I, I probably should. <laughs> David knew that because God was eternal, the life that he offered now was merely a shadow of what he could expect for as long as God lived. God's promises are tied to him, not me. It's tied to what he can give, not what I can receive. That's why it's eternal. That's why it will last forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For those of you that are gifted with hospitality, if I ever come to your house and visit, I won't dwell in your house. When I go to your house, I'm very proper. Bless you. I just demonstrated that. That's I'll do that every time. Anyone sneezes, bless you. I'm very proper. I'll sit there. I'll even have my fork and knives on the right side, just like you should. I'll use the little, you know, doily or whatever you would give to me to keep the watermark from getting on your table. I'll leave my shoes on. Or I'll take them off if that's your rule. That's your rule, you know, to take off your shoes. All right. I hope I have, you know, (laughs) I hope I didn't put on the socks with holes. But I'll, I'll take my shoes off. Fine. I will move around your house at your discretion. Can I use your restroom? And if you say no... That's gonna, it's going to be a long afternoon. But, you know, yes, feel free. Use our restroom. Great. And I'll go in there. And I won't even look in your cabinets. <laughs> I won't see what you're doing. I, just, I, won't, I won't look behind your mirror or whatever else. All of you are going, I'm never inviting this man to our house. I don't trust him. I don't blame you. You're, you're a judge, you have a good <laughs> judge of character. But I dwell differently. And there's a huge Huge difference. Many of us believe that we're going to get to heaven, but we're going to try and like stay out of the Lord's view. Like, we're going to try and stand behind other guys and duck every time his eye turns. Like we're like he's the eye of Sauron, and we're just going to duck out of the way because we don't want him to kick us out. We're a little worried that maybe he made a mistake. Maybe accounting's going to come and find us and go, "You or you do not belong here." And you know you don't belong here. But David says, I'm going to dwell. And that means he's going to walk into the house, throw his shoes wherever he wants to throw them, and he's going to plop on the couch. And he's going to go, and he's going to go into the fridge, and he's going to open the milk. He's not even going to put the thing back on the top. He's going to dwell. That's the difference between visiting and dwelling. It's his home that he's going to be living in. It's our home. We're never going to feel insecure about where we are. We're going to dwell with the Lord for all eternity. That's where our Savior, Shepherd, leads us to. Now, before we leave this chapter, I'd like to point out a few things that we learn about our shepherd, our God first. This psalm, I believe, is actually an illustration of each of God's names, descriptive titles. Let me demonstrate this to you. So, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Ra'a, the Lord my shepherd. I shall not want Jehovah Jireh, 
the Lord, my provider. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, my peace. He restores my soul. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, my healer. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, my righteousness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is present. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jehovah Ezer, the Lord my help. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, the standard, my standard of victory. My cup runs over Jehovah Manah, the Lord my portion. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jehovah Chelech, the Lord my inheritance. Hmm? Look at those phrases. That's all that God is to us. And so much more, but it's so well put there by David, don't you think? As we begin to close this passage, I'd like to give kind of a quick outline to help us synthesize these lessons we've discovered here. Again, looking at it from the shepherd's view, we see the shepherd's provision in that he meets his lamb's needs physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Note the shepherd's purpose. He leads and guides in righteousness, comforting and correcting as we travel through life's valleys. Finally, see the shepherd's power as he sets me safely at an open table with my enemies. Or even better, he powerfully moves upon them to make them my family. And his power assures us that we'll live with him forever. That's a shepherd I can follow. How about from our perspective? How, what would we take from this? From our perspective, a lamb under the shepherd confesses contentment. I want what I have, so I have what I want. It's the best way to be content. To actually want what you have. And then you'll have what you want. Real simple. A lamb under the shepherd confirms their commitment to conformity to Christ. I'm not trying to get a life that's different than his. I want to look like him. I want to think like Christ. I want to act like Christ. I want the world to see Christ, not a better me. I want to move out of the way so they'll see him. And finally... A lamb under the shepherd can be assured of eternal community with people that I'll look at and I'll go, wow, you got in too. <laughs> You're probably as surprised as I am. But what does it mean to unbelievers? And you guys are all saints in here, I'm assuming. But even then, I can't make that assumption, really. Maybe you've never made a commitment to Christ. So let me, let me put it to you this way. Because it might be helpful to distinguish at this moment who is not a lamb by looking at this passage the other way. God is not your shepherd if you are your own master. You have a plan for your life. And you're going to fake it till you make it. God is not your shepherd if you're consistently discontent with what you have. It's never enough. Only a believer knows what contentment is. God is not your shepherd if you are unable to find or dwell in peace. That doesn't mean that you're going to have moments of fear and trepidation. It means that in those places... God will replace that with his peace that passes understanding. 
You are not, he is not your shepherd if you're unwilling to avail yourself to the healing or to his healing by submitting to his ordinances. In other words, a shepherd or rather a lamb wants to be with other sheep. They want to be in church. God cannot be your shepherd if you have little regard for his standards of righteousness. If it doesn't mean anything to you that there are certain things that are off limits, if you don't recognize that there's some things you can no longer do, movies you can no longer see, and it's not because someone's putting a legalistic trip on you, it's just you realize, if I do that, I'm going to be sinning against the Lord. If you have no regard for his righteousness, he cannot be your shepherd. And he's not your shepherd if you're giving or you're given to a living a life of fear. If someone else is your help, if you have some other standard of victory besides submission to Christ, if your holiness is found in your works, I'd be concerned. But finally, if your portion is what is found in this life and your inheritance is only in what can be spent in this life, I'd really, really reconsider your position. The Lord is my shepherd. He satisfies his sheep. He anticipates our needs and heals our wounds. He leads us in his right paths, correcting and comforting us along the way. He's my help, my victory, my holiness, my portion in this life, and my inheritance in the next. Can you say the same? I pray that you will. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you, Lord, that you are such a good shepherd to us. You have laid down your life for your sheep. You have given your back to the smiters. Lord, you have taken all of the wrath that was due to us so you could lead us to you. And tonight, Father, we would just ask you to let us soak in the truths that are here. Let us remember, God, these things that, God, we're not wandering aimlessly in this world, that you haven't forgotten, you haven't not figured out things, Lord. You're leading us by still waters. You're taking us there where you want us to go. Let us be content. Let us fall into these things and remind ourselves, Lord, that these are the truths of what the world is trying to watch in our lives today. Lord, be glorified in our hearts and our lives. And Father, let us repent if there's anything that's amiss in our spirits. If we've been lambs that have been difficult to lead, Father, forgive us. Make us sensitive to your spirit that we might walk and be what you want us to be. Right now, I want to just take a moment. If you've never made the Lord your shepherd. If he is not your shepherd tonight, if you happen to be watching online or if you're here in this house tonight, Jesus is a good shepherd. He says that of himself. He laid down his life for you and I that if we would believe upon him, we wouldn't perish, but we would have everlasting life. And he offers that to each person. You're not a greater sinner than he is a savior. And tonight, if you have never come to him, he calls you to repent of your sin, to believe upon Jesus, and to trust in his name. And if that would be you tonight, whoever he calls, whoever calls upon his name, he will in no wise cast you out. So call upon him tonight.
And we want to pray with you toward that end. Father, we lift up those that are in this place, perhaps watching either tonight, right this minute, someplace on the earth, or maybe someplace in the future. We call upon you, Lord, to meet those people with your salvation. Draw them to yourself, Lord. Allow them to experience your life as they repent of their sin, Lord, as they turn from that which they valued to what cannot be valued to you, Lord. Lord, we would ask you to do that work of justification in their souls. Thank you that you're a faithful shepherd that draws even those who would be your enemies to your table to be your family. We thank you that you're doing that now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.